Matthew. We are continuing uh, with the Sermon on the Mount. We come this morning to Matthew 5, uh, verses 43 through 48. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. We are finally coming to the end of Matthew chapter 5. We have been here, I think, for almost two and a half months. If that's any inclination of how long it will take us to get through all 28 chapters of the book of Matthew, then we will be here for some time. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and send rains on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Last week, Jesus taught us a hard lesson. Uh, We are not to return insult for insult. If someone seeks to take from you, you give them more than they're trying to take. You go the extra mile. Now Jesus is just being more insulting to us. He is indeed adding insult to injury. He tells us, not only are you to give to your enemies, but you're to love your enemies. If I asked you the question, is it easier to love friends and neighbors than it is enemies, you'd probably say yes, of course. Uh, Friends tend to be cooperative, and uh, we find them through some sort of common interest. They trade favors with us. If I ask you over for dinner, then you'll ask me over for dinner. Neighbors, maybe a little less so, they can be endured as long as they keep their distance and stay on their side of the road and stay out of your yard. They'll be okay, but love your enemies? At best, we maybe try to be polite or just stay out of their way. But Jesus calls us to something more. So I want us to see three points. First, we'll see to love your enemy. Second, we'll see the call to be different. And then finally, we'll see the call to be perfect. So let's look by getting at beginning begin by looking at blah, 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 uh, love of your enemies. He begins again by saying, "You have heard it said." We have seen this over and over again. And then he'll go on and say, "But I say to you." Uh, this time he says, "You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." This is the final teaching in a major section here and Jesus has been teaching on the meaning of the law. We know uh, from several weeks ago that he called his disciples to something more. Your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But he defines this, of course, as we've seen, uh, in terms of motives rather than external deeds. You're not only not to commit murder, you're to banish all anger and contempt that leads to murder. You're not only to banish uh, adultery, but you're to banish a lustful eyes and all that leads to adultery. But now he mandates us to love our enemies. Each time Jesus has said, you have heard it said, he summarized the law. He said, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. But this last time, Jesus is combating a darker error. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is a half quote 
and a half fabrication. Love your neighbor was a part of the law of Moses. But what about hate your enemy? There are some that would argue that it works here, that yes, the Old Testament teaches you to hate your enemies. God commanded Israel to go in and kill the Canaanites without mercy. God also, or we also see some psalms. They're called impurgatory psalms that rejoice in God's judgment on those who hate God's people. We can go in the New Testament. Revelation teaches us the same thing, that Babylon was ripe for judgment. But the Bible never anywhere commands us to hate individuals. Even if there is a place, and I would argue that there is, for the righteous anger against God's enemies in general, we cannot classify this to specific people. The man who stands before us, who we may consider our enemies, may very well be wicked, but we don't know if he'll repent or not. A great example of this is Paul, who was once Saul. Saul, as he stood there, holding the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. Surely this is a wicked man who we can say we can hate. And yet, he became Paul, the apostle, the writer of much of the New Testament. God is patient towards individuals. He is long-suffering. So we must be the same. So we are called to love our enemy. And we may ask, even as Jesus was asked, uh, we're to love our neighbor. Who is my neighbor? We may be tempted to ask, well, who is my enemy? For Jesus' audience, they would have viewed the Romans as their enemy. This is the occupying force. Those who are keeping them in submission. Would loving a Roman soldier, a Roman citizen, be returned? No. They would be their enemies still. Jesus, as he tells us to love our enemies, does not promise that they will then become our friends. The result of loving our enemy, or excuse me, loving our enemy, we don't do it so that we have results. Results are not the goal. But then how can we love those who hate us? Some say, and they try to reason this away, that the word that is being used here is agape, and it is agape. And so they they interpret agape, agape love, to be devoid of emotion. So so basically Jesus is saying, uh, you have to will or perform sacrificial acts to love this person. Love then is dispassionate. However, it's not that simple. Paul uses the same word of affection, of of desires, of attitudes, of feelings, and deeds. So Jesus goes on and he tells us, love your enemies, and you do this by praying for those who persecute you. We're to pray for our enemies. And we know, I think, as if you've ever done this, as you pray for someone, your animosity decreases, your compassion increases. As we focus on God, God's love is the source through which we can love our enemies. And in doing this, in praying for our enemies, we are reminded of our own condition. That we were enemies of God. Even as Paul tells us, 
even while we were yet sinners, even while we were yet enemies of God, even so, He loved us. He died for us. To love our enemies, then, is to love or to live like a child of God. We must remember that we are sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. He says, so that you may be sons, so that you may be daughters of your Father in heaven. We demonstrate that we are God's children by showing the same sort of love that the Father shows. It's an idea of imitating, and this is not foreign in the Bible. Ephesians 4.32 through 5.2 says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And notice these three things. Be kind, be tenderhearted, be forgiving, as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you. It goes on in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If we're to walk in love as Christ walked in love, then while others are yet our enemies, we are to love them. We know here that God blesses the just and he blesses the unjust. It says, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends, sends rain on the just and the unjust. In essence, if we believe all this, then we should not only show friends, but enemies acts of loving kindness. And we should do this with no anticipation, with no uh, regard to getting something in return. Uh, Alfred Plummer says this, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. To love as God loves is moral perfection. This is what we're called to. Lack of results should never deter us. We are to love our enemies solely based upon the fact that God loves us in Christ. So this then is a call to be different, which is our second point. It is easy to love those who love us. He says this here. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? We tend to congratulate ourselves for small acts of kindness. But Jesus tells us here that, not, that there's nothing commendable, commendable excuse me, in returning favor for a favor. If you come and do something nice for me, and then I do something nice for you, that's not love. That's politeness. It does not count as a sign of love. It doesn't count as a virtue. He says, for if you do this, then you're just like the tax collector. You're just like the Gentile. He says here, the most two despised people of the time, people groups. He says, first, you're like a tax collector. These are Jewish people who collaborated with Rome. They would collect funds, and this money would be used to help the Roman occupation. A collaboration has always been thought of as very low. If you know anything about World War II in Holland, when Holland was finally liberated, women uh, were, had their heads shaved who were collaborators, and they, well, orange paint was thrown on them. Men were just killed for collaborating with Germany. 
Collaboration has always been a serious thing. Collaborators have always been looked down on. But then they also says on pagans, Gentiles, those who do not believe in God's law or obey God's law, the Roman oppressors, the occupying force, the dregs of the earth, in, es- in essence, show kindness for kindness. If this is the case, then the disciples have to do something far greater. Favor for favor is polite, but we should not think ourselves great for this. Many churches uh, seem cold and unwelcoming to visitors, but the same churches will say, well, we feel like we're very friendly. But they're friendly with those who are friendly. They greet those who greet them. Self-interest, in essence, should never be why we're kind and friendly. As we've seen, as we've continued to see, that the ultimate example of this is Jesus. While we were his enemies, he died for us. We cannot let ourselves ever be content with common decency. We are to aspire to something greater. To love the stranger, love the enemy, and not expect anything in return. This is a hard, hard thing, isn't it? What reward do you have, he says? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. It's interesting because he tells us that your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And then he says here, even those you see as the most sinful people do more than you do. He doesn't compare them to the scribes or the Pharisees. He he compares them to those who the scribes and Pharisees despised. In this, we see the weightiness of what he's trying to tell us. But he goes on. If if we're not to be like this, if we're to be different and not like everybody else, how are we to be? And this is our final point. He says, you are to be perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to be perfect as the Father is perfect. Uh, we get again see that Jesus' moral standard, the life that he's calling us to live, is unattainable. He, he reinforces this by calling us to be no less than like the character of God. Some say that perfect, the perfectness here is just implying maturity or completeness. But this is not what it's saying here. This is sinlessness. He's saying you have to be just like your Father in Heaven. Even if it does mean mature, he's saying you have to be as mature as your Father in Heaven. And how is that any easier than being sinless? We are called to a great standard. I think it's important for us to remember that the sermon here that he's preaching is to those who are disciples of Christ, those who are believers. No one can keep Jesus' standard and earn entry into the kingdom. We know this. You can't live like Jesus is calling you to live so that you can earn your way into heaven. So we know, even as we have seen over and over again through the weeks, 
that disciples are to take this. They're to see their failures. They're allowed to allow their failures to drive them to the cross. And this is right and this is good. This is where we plead for mercy. We go there and we contemplate the standard of God and we plead for grace. There's nothing else that those who would be disciples of Christ can do. When we understand what God requires of us, we understand how pitiful our efforts are. But there's also here a hope for success. We could leave it at that. We could say, okay, it's not possible to do, so we go to the cross and we leave it there. But God also offers for us a hope for success, not just mercy for when we fail. Certainly he gives us this, and I never want to detract from this, that as we fail, we have mercy in him. But this verb here, it's what we call future indicative. It's saying you shall be perfect, but it's also you should be perfect now. It's both points to the immediate, but also to the future. We are to work now at being perfect. We are called to be like our Father in heaven This is how we know who he's talking to. He's not talking to the unbeliever who doesn't have a father in heaven. He's talking to those believers who have a father in heaven. The fact that he is in heaven, it makes him far from us. His standard is unattainable. But this is juxtaposed with the fact that he is also our father, which makes us near to him. We are to sit at his feet. We are to come and learn from our Father. This, in essence, is what it means to live in the kingdom. Our Father is remaking us into His image. You are to love your enemies. You are to pray for them. And you can only do this by being like Him. By His grace and His Spirit, we find this desire. We find the ability to do this. So I ask you, Do you love like your father loves? Or are we always looking for something in return? Loving our enemies gives us a chance to be like him. Our animosity, our hatred of God could not thwart his love for us. And so we cannot allow others' animosity to thwart our love for them. This commands is both at the same time impossible. And well, it seems somewhat attainable, but it's also very, very hard. It becomes really hard in practice. I'm sure that there are people for all of us that it's hard to love. Of course, the most basic one, Republicans don't like to love Democrats, and Democrats don't like to love Republicans. It's not easy. It's hard to love the Muslim. It's hard to love those who steal from us. It's hard to love those who tear us down and make fun of us. But this is exactly what Jesus calls us to. To love your enemy. To love those who will not love you back. What will this look like to love these Can we set aside our anger? Can we set aside our hatred? Can we set aside our pride? 
This is something that's very, very hard to do, especially when we have been wronged. And not just wronged in our own mind, but justifiably wronged. It's right for us to say, you have wronged me. And yet, even so, we love them. That is very, very hard. But if we think about it, who has been more justifiably wronged than Jesus? He has a case against us. He could have looked towards the cross and said, you don't deserve my love. And he would be right, wouldn't he? We don't deserve his love. And even so, even so, he hangs on the cross and says, forgive them. They know not what they do. And yet we just don't have a hard time loving our enemies outside of this wall. We have a hard time loving those inside of these walls. We have a hard time loving our brother and sister in Christ. We have a hard time loving our family. We have a hard time loving our friends. When it comes to the image of Christ, we fall woefully short. At this point, uh, we take comfort in the cross, and this is well and good, and I'm tempted to leave you with that. But I think this does a disservice to us. The cross can very easily become an excuse for us. Well, I don't love my enemies, but I have the cross. And that can be true, and that is true. But we cannot treat people without love and chalk it up to our own sinfulness. We have to make efforts daily to be like our Father in Heaven. We are to be perfect, even as He is perfect. If we allow the cross to become an excuse for us, we demean what Christ has done. We cannot say, oh well, I can't do it. I got Jesus though. And it's true. I'm not, I don't want you to hear me demeaning that because that is really true. But it's the attitude of our heart when we do that, when we turn. We have seen that we are to love our enemy. We're to be different. We're to be perfect. This command is not an easy one. It is not an easy one. But we're called. We can't be content with mere reciprocity, with reciprocity. Whatever. Reciprocity is good enough. It wasn't going to come. We have to strive to more than just the, uh, the common courtesies of this world. We have to be perfect. And we have the cross. And we know his grace is all sufficient. We have been justified. We have been made just as if we have never sinned. But brothers and sisters, we cannot forget about our sanctification. We are called to be holy even as he is holy. We are to be perfect even as our Father in heaven is, is perfect. Do not let the cross become an excuse for you. The weight of God's command should weigh on 
glory, kavod, which is the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, can literally be translated heavy. The heaviness of the glory of God should weigh on you. We should strive to be like that. Yes, we will not attain it, but we should be working towards it. I entitled this sermon, Adding Insult to Injury. Because last week we could say that he injured us by telling us to give of our possessions. But now he insults us by telling us to love those who don't love us. And yet we are the ones, aren't we? We are the ones who add insult to injury. And yet Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, we are called to love those who are unlovely. Even as Christ has loved us, who are the unlovely. It is hard. It is hard. And we must trust in him for it, but we also must work. We also must work at it. We must do it every day. It is hard. I admit for myself it is hard. It's hard for all of us. But we must seek ways to love those who do not love us. Let's pray. Dear most gracious Heavenly Father, we fully admit that this passage is hard. We do not want to love those who are our enemies. Work in us, we pray. Work in us so that we may be more like your Son. May we understand that we are the unlovable. And may we look at this world and may, we, may this world be transformed because we not love expecting to get something in return, but we love as our Father loves. And we pray all this in Jesus' most holy name.